Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Are you tired of being sheep? Well, so is he. Get a friend, get informed, and get involved. It's We Are Not Cattle Radio. Well, good evening and welcome to We Are Not Cattle Radio. I'm your host, Jake Counts, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia. It is the 24th day of July, 2013, podcast number 18, if you can believe it. And um, today we're going to get into um, economics. Basically, I'm going to run down the difference between um, one school of thought, which is the Keynesian school of thought, which is what is being perpetuated all throughout our society as a whole. And then there's a different economic perspective called um, called Austrian economics. Now, one of the things to note about Austrian economics, it's one of the oldest schools that has ever existed of economics, and it doesn't do any future forecasting or anything like that in the Keynesian view. But... I'm going to actually let a bunch of um, professionals other than myself, the layperson, try to explain it to you. I've got a bunch of audio clips. I broke up a really great speech by uh, Mark Mark Thornton that I'm going to play bits and pieces of. And I've got some quotes from Ron Paul and uh, Thomas Sowell. So um, one of the things that I would say that is um, if you're ever looking for somebody to follow or if you're looking for somebody with some really good perspective, Thomas Sowell is one of my – my favorite people on the planet for any kind of perspective, whether it's social issues, whether it's economic issues. Uh, His book, um, Basic Economics, is one that I'm going through right now on Audible, and it's it's really solid. It basically shows you the difference between all different types of, you know, command and control economies as opposed to uh, a free market economy, which is what we're supposed to have here. But in the United States today, we have more of what we would consider a um, a crony capitalistic economy. That is where insiders get uh, sweetheart deals and also no-bid contracts, and the little guy never gets to compete. So that's what we see here in America. And the only way that we can change it is by raising awareness for it and um, spreading different ideas. Remember, this podcast is about... Challenging the norm, not only from an economic perspective, but um, challenge yourself. Challenge the reason that you believe things. You know, go out and ask questions. Do your own research. Don't let um, the magic box tell you what um, what you should and shouldn't do, because that gets us into perpetual wars and it gets us into bondage, which we're headed towards shortly. But hopefully, this is my guest right here. Um, I've got um, a friend of mine. Megan, is this you? Yes, it is. Excellent. Everybody, um, 
Welcome, Megan Renee, to the podcast. I met her in Atlanta doing a screening of the movie called The Silver Circle, which is now out in um, in plenty availability for you guys. So, Renee, I'm going to give you the floor. Give us um, give us the once over on what The Silver Circle is, um, the actual concept of the movie, and um, and we'll just have a quick conversation about my takeaway from it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again for coming out to the event in Atlanta. And mm-hmm. uh, actually, we just finished up a 16-city theatrical release around the United States for Silver Circle and uh, had a vibrant crowd in just about every city, really pleased with how it turned out. Uh, but Silver Circle, actually, as a film, is an animated fictional story about a future economic collapse in the United States where the dollar is no longer the world's reserve currency uh, there's no longer banks. It is just the Federal Reserve Bank that has taken over. Uh, it's taken over various security measures and things like that, and basically outsized the federal government um, in terms of its scope of power, which is basically what's going on today, mm-hmm. except they're behind the curtain right now. In the movie, they're much more blatantly controlling things. And uh, essentially, this group of rebels are banding together underground to try to defeat the Federal Reserve. And one of their strategies, aside from uh, making friends with a particular investigator, is they actually begin their own currency underground made out of silver. Terrorism. Yes. They would be marked (laughs) as domestic economic terrorists if this was not a fictional film. You're absolutely correct. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, essentially our, our whole idea is to take this very um, sometimes very boring economic con- conversation, at least, you know, to me and you it's not boring. It's exciting to talk about monetary policy, but we're also very strange uh, in terms of the majority of people in the U.S. So what we've done is packaged all of these ideas and, uh, you know, some very self-education into a fun-filled animated feature link movie so you know anyone can watch it your neighbor your the clerk at the grocery store if they don't know anything about economics they can sit down watch this movie enjoy it and at the very end know a little bit more about how monetary policy functions in the u.s yeah and i think uh, once again the like you said the the movie speaks to people of all ages and everybody can get it i think that um you know for for some people um just the word economics is kind of a um it's kind of a threatening word to them because they don't really know what it entails. And it's a lot of people get bogged down with the the fact that economics is based on a whole bunch of numbers and it's like finance when really it's not that at all. It's just understanding relationships between, you know, certain goods and services. It's not, I mean, it is about numbers at the end of the day, but it's not the overarching, you know, like the Keynesians like to believe they like to model all their stuff and try to predict the future. Whereas um, most pure economics and pure economists look at just um, just a reaction to the marketplace and the free market, correct? Correct. Awesome. So it's more it's more philosophical through our our eyes what economics is. It's you know the relationship between what people want and need and mm-hmm. how you deliver it and how you know often it's demanded, when it's demanded, how badly it's demanded, et cetera. Right, and what they're willing so to, and what they're really willing to pay for. Of, exactly. There's a lot of philosophy behind it, I believe. Which is a lot of where I think the the free market thinkers come from. Exactly, and and a lot of the uh, the traditional schools of thought are are getting exposed now. And one of the um, 
one of the things that I did uh, last night, I went to an event that was held, um, hosted by a group here in Atlanta, and um, they had a an economist from the University of Georgia speak about the first 100 years of the Fed. So the one thing that was really exciting to me, and I don't know if you can speak to this at all, but when I first started going to Liberty events, they were very small, and there was you know, 12, 15 people there, and you know everybody was kind of sizing everybody up. But now the more I go out to these events, the, the larger and larger they're getting, and whether it's talking about economics or talking about civil liberties, gun rights, whatever, I just start to see an expansion in, in people's thinking and, and people's you know, returning to what made this country great. Did you see that as far as you know, your, your different cities that you went to to premiere this film? Yeah, I mean, we had excellent, uh, an excellent turnout in just about every city. There were some slower-paced places, but I mean, we sold over a thousand tickets nationwide. Um, actually, probably over eleven or twelve hundred because we had a, a, a few last-minute screenings that popped up towards the end of the tour. Um, however, I would say it's, you know it's encouraging just because of the diversity of people that were there and the number of people that were there. So, as we all know, the Ron Paul movement really publicized and popularized. The Federal Reserve Bank. I, I and mean, you guys were part of came, you guys were part of that, right? You guys were actually got a cameo. Let everybody know how, what your cameo was with Dr. Ron Paul for the movie. Oh, it was it was one of it was probably the best part of my job so far, <laughs> working for Silver Circle. Um, during a financial subcommittee hearing uh, last this past February. Uh, Ron Paul was testifying in front of Ben Bernanke, and I'm sure a lot of people listening know all about this video. It went viral. It was everywhere, all over the news. But he held up a piece of silver right into Ben Bernanke's face and said, this is money, and started to explain a lot of what Murray Rothbard taught him um, about intrinsic value and, you know, what money really is and it turns out that the piece of silver that Ron Paul held up to Ben Bernanke was our Silver Circle, uh, which you can see in the movie Silver Circle as well as purchase for yourself. We have one-ounce and ten-ounce rounds on our website at silvercirclemovie.com. So, I mean, it, it was just incredible. It, it, I don't think you can get any better product placement than that, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> anything, anything that you put into in, into Ron Paul's hands is um, is pretty much like we would think. It, it's in good hands. You know, you have somebody oh, that's yeah. up there fighting for freedom and liberty, and then having him pull out your piece of silver. I remember you you. I don't know if if when we met at uh, Liberty Fest, if it was like a couple of couple of weeks after that but um you brought it up to me i'm like oh yeah he holds up the piece of silver you're like no he holds up this piece of silver let's be real yeah. so that is a i mean it's super cool to see stuff like that catch on it was a, it was an incredible movie guys that's the reason i brought renee on and i thought it would be um or excuse me megan on it was um it's one of those things that you know if you're going to be talking about economics if you're going to be talking about you know ways to kind of get outside the box and get other people exposed to the info like Megan said, don't sit here and listen to me hammer away on the differences for you know 30 or 45 minutes. That might not be enough for some of your friends to be cued in. But if they get to go see an animated film that's got action in it, it's got you know adventure, it's got you know spying, it's it's really really cool. And the and the way that you guys pulled it off, how long did it take to actually make the film? Is what I wanted to know. Well, um, in reality, it took us about three years, but we did have um, an animation hiccup midway, so that mm -hmm. set us back quite a bit. But um, I'd say overall the production timeline uh, ran us about a year and a half to two years. 
Excellent. So tell the people where they can where they can find this movie. What's the uh, what's the best way to search for it? Uh, best way to learn about the film is definitely visiting silvercirclemovie.com, and I highly encourage you to visit um, silvercirclemovie.com slash watchonline. Uh, there's no space in between, no dash or anything. Just watch online, and it gives you plenty of different options from the VOD platforms we just launched on. So as of right now, Silver Circle is available on everything from iTunes to some of your cable providers have it through On Demand, uh, Amazon Video, Google Play, uh, Voodoo.com. There's so many options to watch Silver Circle, and we will be announcing our DVD release later this month, and we'll have DVDs and Blu-rays available through our online store. But as of right now, uh, if you do get a chance to download at iTunes, um, you can go straight through our website, silvercirclemovie.com slash watchonline. Click on the iTunes logo. It'll take you to the page. And I highly encourage you to, after you watch it, rent, rate, and review it. So make sure you leave a message and uh, a, a good rating if you enjoyed it. You know, I'm only asking for honesty here. And uh, the more reviews and, and ratings we get, the better our visibility will be on the iTunes website. Yeah, and it really is a great film, guys. And it's it's not even two hours, is it? It's like a almost like an hour and forty five minutes. Like ninety minutes. Yeah. yeah, it's a perfect it's a perfect length movie. Like I said, it hits all the highlights. I mean, it's got chemtrails in there. It's got everything. Any anything that. Uh, and a person that's paying attention is going to want to care about. It's all in the film, so I highly recommend you go see it, um, download it, support these guys. They're doing great work out there. And um, Renee, that's I have one other question for you. You posted something on um, social media today, and this is off of the Silver Circle thing. So you're excited about something that you're about to do in your life, and I think it's a really incredible thing. And I didn't want to post anything on Facebook. I thought that's lame because I figured I was talking to you later. So if you're comfortable, why don't you share with the audience what you're going to do and, and how you think that's going to impact your life moving forward? Oh, man. I wasn't expecting you to ask. Well, I no, am I mean, just Welcome to Live Radio. Thrilled. It's, it's all, right. It's all yeah. right. It's all right if you don't want to indulge. I mean, but uh, I thought it was oh, pretty, no, I'm I thought happy it was to. Good. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of – honestly, I was actually pondering over it today, just wondering mm-hmm. what kind of experiences I'm going to have, but I'm actually – I'm leaving New England soon, and uh, I'm going to be I'm, – I'm honestly just so incredibly blessed and lucky enough to have a form of employment where I can travel and work at the same time. So uh, a lot of people who are in the marketing field, social media field, any sort of publicity field, you know all the work's done online, which is an incredible um, – it's just a, an advantage that a lot of people have in this you know, career path to be able to work from home and self-regulate. Mm-hmm. your hours, your locations, and things like that. So I'm actually going to take off and just drive around and find places to stay and visit family and friends. And, you know, I always, I've been telling friends and family, you know, I'm single. Well, maybe I shouldn't be saying that over a live radio. <laughs> no, that's fine. No, but, you're, uh, you're marketing I, now. Don't worry. Now you're yeah, going to have all the, now you're gonna get flooded. <laughs> um, I don't have any children, and I've got jobs. So how else? Should you spend your time than just like letting go, simplifying, which I truly believe in living beneath your means so one day you can live greatly and abundantly. And uh, my goal is to just kind of strip down to the bare minimum, uh, travel around, kind of enjoy what life is like without, you know, many things tying me down throughout the day, things like commuting and, uh, you know, certain hours that need to be put in. And Monday um, morning meetings. 
meetings and just just about anything. I mean, cable. I mean, I, I'm so ready to disconnect for a while, and it's it's a dream I've had for some years now. And I keep thinking to myself, like, wow, maybe I'm going to discover something really awesome about life and about humanity that I haven't been able to discover yet because I'm caught up in the, you know, the one-two that goes on in most of our day-to-day lives. So, um, yeah, so I encourage, you know, if anyone has the opportunity in the career path that lets them take advantage of working remotely, do it. I mean, if you don't have kids, especially if you're single, why the hell not? I mean, I just (laughs) plan on taking the road with me and my dog and see where we end up. I mean, there's, I've been helping out with the Sovereign Living Project out of Austin, Texas, so I'm going to be mm-hmm. helping them out as well as helping Silver Circle out. Uh, I mean, Silver Circle is my, you know, blood, sweat, and tears and heart and soul, so uh, I'll still be working with them and visiting family and friends. So thank you for asking. I'm absolutely thrilled about it. I can't wait. Well, I, I think that you're um, 100% on point, and, and I usually find this after I do, um, and I'm not meaning to be cheesy or anything, but guys, if you you haven't tried meditation, I highly recommend it. I was one of those guys that I thought that you know my life was pretty much in balance until I started doing you know meditation almost on a daily basis. I've almost got it there. So eventually, I'll get there, but it's it's yeah, one of those things that, yeah it's one of those things that you have to work it into your routine and one of um speaking to what you were talking about about basically freeing yourself after you have that you know 20 minutes by yourself you know with your own thoughts and nothing else you really do start to kind of strip away your ego and you start trying to really find out you know what's going to be really important to you and and i always think a change of perspective change of scenery is um is really healthy for you. And I was one of those guys that um, I moved around four or five times before I even settled down here in uh, in Georgia with my wife. But every time I moved, it was like a it was like a fresh start. You got to explore your ego a little bit more. You got to try new things. And I I just commend you for that. I think more people should do what what you're doing and and take what you're saying to heart because you only get one life, guys. You only get one chance on this little crazy rock that's spinning around at six thousand miles an hour. So make the best of it. Make the most of it. Definitely. And and even if you can't, you know, get out on the road and travel immediately, maybe you have things like family or you jo- a job you really enjoy, just think about simplifying your life. I mean, strip yeah. down all these silly things you spend money on, all this silly time and energy that's put towards things that are so insignificant, and I'm sure you're going to open up more time to be able to discover more things through your ego and, you know, your own mind and personal relationships. Absolutely. So, um, anything else? But one more time with the uh, with the web address that people can go to watch the movie, and then um, when you get back from your uh, adventure, I do want to have you back on the podcast for a quick recap and see what what came about this whole excursion. Oh, I'd love to. I plan to to potentially video document it. I'm, I'm not sure. I might keep a little video YouTube journal, so I'll make sure to share it with you. But, That'd be great, uh, and I'll I share it with the audience everyone... too. Thank you. Um, I do hope everyone who is a Silver Circle fan or soon will be will check out silvercirclemovie.com slash watch online and uh, see all the different options you have for uh, watching the film straight from your computer, your iPad. If you have an Apple TV, anything crazy like that, you can watch it all right here, right now, and please rate and review it whenever you get done. Excellent. Thank you so much. And um, right before you go, did you did you get the um, event page that I set up today um, for Facebook for the 23rd of uh, December? Did you get the invite to that? Yeah, the Alternative Currency Day. Yes. So I came up with an interesting idea today, and um, 
because everybody was last night when we were at the in the Fed thing, we were kind of kicking around ideas of, you know, I want to do a um, I want to do an in the Fed rally, and, uh, and try to get a, a bunch of different groups there. But you know, you're going to have different kind of splinter segments, whether they're activists, whether they're you know free market economists, anarchists, what have you. But I'm trying to get a whole bunch of different groups together to go protest the Fed. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, what would be a good day? And then I thought about, you know, the 100-year charters coming up on the 23rd. So I went ahead and started a Facebook event, and you guys can find this on uh, through my Facebook page. At, um, you can just Google search Jake Counts on Facebook, or I actually might be able to post it on the um, on the website wearenotcattle.net. But in honor of our of our debt slave owners, I have decided that I am going to dub the 23rd of December. Um, alternative currency day. So that's how we get to show the love to the Fed that um, that we really appreciate what they've done to our currency over the last hundred years. And any kind of transaction that you make, if you're if you're a Christian, you're going to purchase some Christmas gifts. Do it with some place that accepts Bitcoin or some place that accepts an alternative currency like silver or something like that. So we're just going to have to try to get other people involved to get the buzz going about this event. Because if we get other, you know, I guess the best way to look at it, merchants online, then maybe merchants will start understanding the the value of taking something like a Bitcoin or taking an alternative currency. Because that's the only way that we're going to be able to to really lessen the blow of what the Fed's monetary policy is. Now, before before I let you go, Megan, I, I appreciate you going to the event. Um, what is your alternative currency of choice? I think I know the answer. Well, that's kind of a tough one. Man, um, obviously. Now you got a lot of ways you can go. You can go with ammo, silver, gold. I mean, storable yeah. food. You can go a whole bunch of different I, and, ways. And uh, you know, silver. Obviously, I mean, I don't want to go into too much detail, but I've been known to stack, and uh, mm-hmm. I do love spending silver, and I think it's an awesome, you know, potential uh, central currency for the future of different communities. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm learning more and more about Bitcoin every day. Uh, I love Bitcoin because the man can't get his sticky hands on it. That's so, one of uh, the reasons that I thought this would be a great idea to kind of promote Bitcoin and Litecoin and and other alternative oh, yeah. currencies to make it make it almost like a tax-free day, so that they don't get it really they don't get is. they don't get a piece of the pie as they always do. They love that piece. Yeah, too. but I think another um, another form of currency that a lot of people don't think about at the moment is time. I am a huge proponent of time, and the more I can earn free time, the more I will work for free time. So, you know, that's another really awesome form of currency that I prefer. But, yeah, Bitcoin and silver are definitely at the top of my list. Cool, cool. Well, um, thank you so much for the time tonight, and uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of the um, economics part of the um, of the show. And then I think about the last thirty or forty five minutes, I'm going to touch on some news. So, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, keep me in the loop. And if you do do the video di- documentary, um, shoot me the link, and I'll make sure to get it to all the uh, all the listeners. We are not cattle. Sounds awesome, and I can't wait for Alternative Currency Day. I'm definitely going to be spreading the word about that. Excellent, excellent. Fight back the best way we can. The only thing that I, only thing I put on the uh, event page, you can do whatever you want. You can purchase any currencies you want. You can just withstand from purchasing anything that day you want. All I ask is that you know you find some way to resist. That's all I ask. That's right. That's so, right. So, so Megan Renee, thank you, 
Yes, thank you so much for the time. I uh, I look forward to seeing you on the show when you get back and give us all of the, not all the grim details, but uh, you know the once over on your trip <laughs> and what you learned from it. Definitely. All right. Thanks a lot, Jake. All right. Take care, Megan. Bye. All right, there she goes, everybody. Megan Renee from the Silver Circle. And um, like I said, that movie was fantastic. Uh, it's got everything that you want if you're a crazy conspiracy theorist that doesn't trust the government or trust the monetary system or trust known liars. I mean, it's an incredible movie. So that being said, we're going to move on to the topic of the show. And as I can tell, it's um, it's jam-packed in here with um, with nobody in the chat. Because I guess that economics is so exciting and so enthralling that nobody wants to chat about it. But you know what? Here is the the reason that I'm doing this show. It's basically to give you some bullet points to show somebody, share it with somebody, get them thinking about the way that they're doing things. And not necessarily in their life, they meaning the people in charge of monetary policy, the people in their state capital, the people in the big capital, the shiny white capital, and the shiny white house also. We have to get people to think. We have to get people engaged. We have to get people to challenge why we're doing this. That's why it seems like every other podcast is a show about something off the mainstream, new alternative energy sources, you know, different economic discussions. We have discussions about the police state and civil liberties. Where is the balance? Those kinds of things. Do we do we need to go to war with all these countries? These are the questions that we need to be asking. We need to be asking them sincerely. And you need to be asking yourself that. And you need to be asking your friends that. Because if we keep going on the path that we're on, total destruction is not out of the realm of possibility. Now, I'm one of those people that's very risk-averse, so I would like to avoid total destruction of my economic system. Not saying that that's going to happen, that it's a definite. You guys have heard my take on it before. It's, is an economic collapse inevitable? Probably. You don't really know. The way that this market works, we could come up with something tomorrow that would be able to change it or be able to withstand it. But the way that the, the actual controllers and the monetary policy and the fiscal policy and the way that everything is done currently – is unsustainable, and we know that. So what do we have to do? Well, we the people, because the people and the politicians are just going to ride this train into the ground, and they don't care, and they're going to lie to you the entire way saying that everything's peaches when it's not the case. We have to, as a group of individuals, free thinkers, whatever you want to call yourself, truthers, liberty activists, doesn't really matter. You have to all get together, unite people, get people engaged, get people involved, and try to organize. Once again, organizing a bunch of a bunch of um, happy, free-minded liberty people is very difficult. Organizing a bunch of corrupt assholes is very easy, and we see we see it. We see it reflected in our society. You look at all the the gangs. Gangs are always well organized because they're probably doing stuff that's quote unquote illegal by the man. But when you look at Washington, you look at lobbyists and people like that, they're even more organized because they're performing bigger and bigger crimes. So the only thing that really stinks about liberty-minded people is that, man, we are the very toughest to organize. But we're going to try to find a way around that, and the way to get around that is by sharing the message of liberty with everybody, getting people to think, getting people outside the box. So let's go to the, let's go to the first clip. But first, let's talk about what is economics. You know, Megan and I talked, um, and I think I called her Renee like three times, and it feels like such a jackass, but whatever. Sorry, Megan, if you're still listening, I'm sorry. Um, 
What is economics? Well, Webster's Dictionary describes economics as a social science concerned chiefly with the description and analysis of production, distribution, and consumption of goods and services. Nowhere did you hear fancy mathematical models. Nowhere did you hear predictive programming of human beings. Nowhere did you hear any of those things. It is, once again, a social science concerned chiefly with the description and analysis of the production, distribution, and consumption of goods and services. That is all that it is. That's economics. And now, what I want to talk about is the two different views that are – well, one of them is actually on the rise extremely fast, and that's Austrian economics thanks to Dr. Ron Paul amongst many others, Thomas Sowell, you know, those guys. And then you have the old guard, which is the Keynesian economic system, which is highly based on speculation, predictions, um, setting interest rates, whereas – other people would like to let the market decide its own interest rates. You know, I've I've told you guys this before, and I've actually come on the show a couple of times. I've got friends of mine that are communists, and that's fine. It's, you know, they at least they're passionate about what they are. You know, they they're passionate, and they believe that there could be an answer. Do I believe that there's some added benefits, or that there are some benefits to to communism? Absolutely, in its purest form, it sounds fantastic. But at the end of the day, usually you get a bunch of kleptocratic jerks at the top that will repress the people and then tell them they're doing good, and they can't do planned economies. That's the biggest no-no in the world is doing a planned economy because you cannot speculate, analyze, crunch the numbers hard enough to get all of the pins in the right place, if you will. You can't get all of the… You know, loaves of bread at the right store. It just doesn't happen. And you run into abundance, oversupply, undersupply, and rather than letting the markets and the numbers dictate what the actual cost of the good is going to be, you end up with limited spectrum, and you also end up with with very big oversupplies and very big undersupplies, just because there's just there's too much that goes into it. You can't have planned economics. That being said. Once again, that's another form of economics, so we're not even going to get into that. That would be like a governmental-controlled economics. So I am going to let Mark Thornton, who is a senior fellow at the Mises Institute, which is what um, Dr. Ron Paul subscribes to, to um, and I'm going to let him describe the difference between Keynesian economics, which is what gets taught and, and gets spit at you, spit at you on MSNBC, Fox, CNN, whenever they have a political pundit or a economic pundit, unless it's somebody like Peter Schiff, you, you're probably going to get a Keynesian economist that's going to tell you how great the Fed's doing and Bern Bernanke should keep printing money, excuse me, keep making up imaginary ones and zeros until you can't make up ones and zeros anymore, which is just creating a bigger and bigger bubble in the people that have done the studies all understand that and the bond bubble as you guys have heard me say before is one that could be coming up we could also have the student loan bubble a lot of things out there and um you know you just need to be aware of it and we need to start raising awareness of it and start trying to get an idea of how to maybe have some shift in economic policy and the only way that's going to happen is if more people get involved and like i said 
you know, boots on the ground is the greatest thing you can ever do as far as trying to make change because nobody's going to make change on Facebook. The only way you're going to make change is by getting out in the street and by showing physical presence just like they did in Brazil and Turkey and all these other places, which, you know, Brazil, I'm, I can understand they're upset because their, their government's corrupt and they're building, you know, billion-dollar stadiums, and meanwhile, people are starving. So I can completely understand that. But here's the first clip. Uh, it's about four minutes long, so I'll catch you guys on the backside, and then I'll set up the uh, the next couple, and then we'll go into – it's going to be four separate clips. Then I got a clip from Thomas Sowell, I got a clip from Ron Paul, and I got a clip from Gerald Salente, and then we'll get into the news. Once again, thank you for joining us tonight. We are not Cattle Radio, podcast number 18, usually every Tuesday and Thursday night from 9 until 11. I did a show on Wednesday tonight because – I'm going to go spend some time with my family tomorrow down in um, the boonies, which is always fun and exciting. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Share the broadcast with people you know and you like, and um, by all means, tune in live. I'm here. Come on. You can be here with me. It's fine. You can call in. We can all have a good time. Conversations. It's all good. So thanks again. Here is the clip from Mark Thornton. Austrian Economics is the oldest continuous school of economic thought. It was essentially founded in 1870, but we date our roots back to 1730. So we're the oldest school of economic thought. We're actually also the smallest school of economic thought. There's probably a hundred or maybe a thousand mainstream economists for every Austrian economist today. And oddly, we are also the fastest growing School of Economic Thought. So we're the oldest, the smallest, and yet we're the fastest growing, and that growth has intensified in the last few years, largely due to the economic crisis. Mainstream economics, generally Keynesian economics, but there's other schools of thought out there as well, they use a very complicated methods. They use elaborate mathematical modeling, supercomputers, laboratory rats, all sorts of things to try to predict the future of the economy. That's their goal is prediction, and they're willing to use anything and go to any expense to come up with accurate predictions, even using unrealistic models about human behavior. The Austrians, on the other hand, have a very simple approach to economics of using logic and reasoning to try to understand human economic behavior and various economic processes. And while that's simple, it's not necessarily easy. We've spent several hundred years now trying to develop economics as a realistic approach to human behavior. And so what I'm going to do is look at about a half a dozen different aspects of our approaches to economics, our various views on economics, to try to distinguish the Austrians from mainstream economists. And this is very important uh, for me in particular because economists in public opinion polls actually rank lower than the U.S. Congress. Okay, so we've got a reputation to build here. Let's look at uh, basic uh, the basic differences between success and failure in terms of e- economics and economies. 
Uh, the U.S., the United States, uh, was a very successful economy um, built from virtually nothing to what it is today, which is the world's largest economy. You can look at other countries as well, like Hong Kong, uh, very, very successful. And then you can look at other areas which were not successful. Uh, various African economies have fared very poorly. Uh, many of the former communist countries fared very poorly where the economies actually shrank over time. And then you can look in more recent times and you look at China and India, which have gone from very low levels of economic development to the fastest growing economies in the world. Okay, so what explains that? Austrians, on our view, is that free markets in the economy lead to success. That private property rights, where individuals have clear title to their houses, their factories, their warehouses, their goods and services, that's also very important. People want to feel secure in their property rights, and they, if they do feel secure, they're willing to increase the amount of property. They're willing to save. They're willing to invest. We also feel that sound money is very important for an economy so that the measuring rod in all exchanges stays stable over time. And so Austrians advocate a gold standard where gold coins and silver coins are the medium of exchange. And that medium is essentially stable over long periods of time so that the when we're measuring things just like with a yardstick, we don't want the length of that yardstick changing very much. Aha! So once again, stable currency as opposed to what we have now. And gosh, I really wish I had some people in the chat room and ask them what standard we're on right now. That's a really interesting question for people that that um, that say they don't get into politics. We'll ask them, you know, hey, what's your what's your currency backed by? We are the petrol dollar. Yay, petrol. Now, there is one thousand things wrong with that, but let's just start with one. When we were on the gold standard, it, it did a lot of things for our country. It gave us the ability to not really speculate too far out because gold was typically had intrinsic value and it wouldn't very – you know, a couple of percentage points a year, but it would consistently grow up, excuse me, go up, you know, consistently gain value. And then that's against inflation and everything. So the market can kind of go up along with it. You know, once again, stable, predictable. That's what economics likes. The, the, the smaller variables you can get in the statistical models, the better off you are. The closer you can get those little sine curves or cosine curves, whatever you want to look at them. The closer you can get those things to a flat line, the better off you're going to be. Well, what we've known is since the 1971, when we were taken off the gold standard, you've seen an increase. And it's becoming more of a parabolic increase as soon as we completely left the gold standard and went to the petrol dollar. So... That's the one little clip of that, and then I'll get into how that's going to affect your purchasing power and, and why these are big issues. They're big issues because what's going on on a daily basis out of the Federal Reserve. So here's the next clip, 
to kind of piggyback on top of the first one, and then I've got two more, and then we're going to take a break, and then after the break, I'll come back with Thomas Sowell's perspective, Ron Paul's perspective, and Gerald Salente's perspective, and then we'll hit the news. Now, mainstream economists have a different view. Uh, they are very heavily into the regulation, that government regulation of the economy is essential to create a growing economy. They find market failures uh, all over the place. They believe in a government safety net is important for economic growth, and they view things like the Federal Reserve or central banking, which controls the money supply as well as the banking system, is the key to economic success. So we disagree wholeheartedly with that approach, but that's the difference. The issue of prediction is very important for the mainstream economists. That's their goal, and it's a worthy one. Everybody wants to know the future. Austrians believe that you can't know the future with certainty. However, Austrian economists have successfully predicted all of the major economic crises over the last century. Ludwig von Mises, for example, the namesake of this institute, correctly predicted the Great Depression in a book that he published in 1928. F.A. Hayek also predicted it, uh, who was Mises' student. Uh, mainstream economists at the time thought we were in a new era of prosperity that would never turn back. The same was true for the stagflation of the 1970s. Murray Rothbard, who was the first academic vice president of this institute, successfully predicted the oncoming stagflation of the 1970s, where mainstream economists thought we were, again, in a new era. When we came to the tech stock bubble of the late 1990s, Austrian economists, by the dozens, were warning about the bubble and the crisis to come, while mainstream economists were predicting, once again, a new era. Because of technology, the only thing that they were worrying about was that the technology was going to put people, we wouldn't have anything left to do in terms of work. And then, of course, with the housing bubble and the current economic crisis, Austrian economists were writing about that in 2003, 2004, 2005, while mainstream economists were predicting a new era. You could never lose money in housing, they were telling us. Real estate prices never go down. So that's the story in terms of prediction. How about the cause of this economic crisis? Well, it's already, it's already been mentioned that Austrians view the Federal Reserve policy of setting interest rates at 1% in 2002, 3, 4 uh, was the cause of this crisis that low interest rates led to increased demand for housing, more homes, bigger homes, and a lot more debt. Mainstream economists say it was a lack of regulation of the economy, that we had bad regulations, and that consumers and investors were, for whatever reason, exhibiting highly speculative behavior. So they were blaming the consumer, people, for the crisis, we find that it was the Federal Reserve. Well, how about the cure to this crisis? Well, Austrians believe that easy credit and low interest rates led to too much debt and too little saving, leaving households and businesses at risk for, 
for lower housing prices. Therefore, the key to curing this crisis is less debt and more savings. Mainstream economists view that we need more regulation and that government must provide a stimulus in the form of increased government spending and even more debt. So the mainstream wants us to take on even more debt, while the Austrians view that debt is key to the problem. Correct. Oh, and by the way, interest rates are now at 0%, not at 1% anymore. So that's good. That actually means the cheap money's out there. So, and, um, you know, it, it really does become disconcerting to a lot of people if you if you really study this stuff. And you don't have to study it very long. I mean, I think that you can really kind of grasp the difference in, in, in the two philosophies even in this podcast. But if you want a deeper dive, there's a bunch of lectures on YouTube. I'll link to them in, um, in my show notes for tonight. I know I've been slacking on updating the uh, the website, but that's going to get a, a complete overhaul this weekend. And um, it's it's just getting the information out there and trying to understand you know where we're going. You know, some people aren't going to care, and that's fine. You know, let them let them care about what they want to care about. The people that we're trying to reach are the people that can actually make a difference and can actually put together some, you know some cogent thought and and really try to to get us out of this mess. Because it's going to be a mess, and it's not going to get any better. Bernanke keeps printing money every month, keeps monetizing $85 billion of bad debt. So we have to do something. We have to get people involved. You have to get people aware of what's going on. So here comes the uh, the next clip, um, and then I'll just go right into the last clip after this. I might play, you know, just have a couple of recaps. And then after that, we're going to take a break, and then the Thomas Sowell clip. So here we go. So what should the Fed do? What should the federal government do and the Federal Reserve do Nothing. at this point? Well, Austrians b believe that interest rates, as been previously shown, uh, should be de determined by the marketplace, by the free interchange of borrowers and lenders, savers and investors. Terrorism. So the Fed should do, in our view, nothing that it should allow interest rates to find their own level. Bailouts by the Fed only lead investors to even worse behavior, knowing that the Fed will bail them out. Okay, it's a moral hazard. If you see people getting bailed out, then why not undertake risky behavior yourself? It should be noted that the chairman of the Federal Reserve uh, is a Ph.D., mainstream economist. He got his uh, doctorate in economics. He wrote his dissertation on the, the Great Depression, where he found that the Great Depression was caused by the failure of the Federal Reserve, their failure to bail out the banks. So in terms of bailing out banks, Mr. Bernanke, literally wrote the book. So on, in retrospect, I guess it shouldn't be too surprising that he moved his way up the ladder to become the nation's chief inflationist. 
Deflation is an interesting topic. You might have heard that occasionally in the news, in the newspaper, in the financial news. Uh, deflation for mainstream economists is literally the black hole of economics. In other words, if you see prices falling in the economy, that for them that can lead to bankruptcies and foreclosures with assets having to be sold off at auctions and that's causing lower prices which is causing bankruptcies, foreclosures and failures and layoffs leading to even still lower prices and the economy literally swirls down the black hole like water down a toilet. So they're fearful of this and they're willing to do anything to prevent it. Going to extreme measures such as putting out hundreds of billions of dollars out there to try to keep prices up. Austrians have a completely different view. We view deflation as a perfectly normal part of the economy where we expect in a free market economy on sound money for prices of things to go down, like the price of computers going down, the price of television sets going down, the price of cell phones going down. We would expect in a free market economy that the prices of everything would be going down slowly over time. So we're not afraid of it. We, just like everybody who shops at Walmart, enjoy lower prices, where the mainstream economists fear them. They have a phobia of lower prices. In a crisis, deflation actually plays a critical role that the mainstream economists don't see. So let's think about a crisis and think about falling prices. What's actually happening? Well, the, the first thing in a crisis is that stock prices go down dramatically. The price of capital goods falls dramatically. The, the price of raw materials and commodities falls dramatically. There's also large decreases in real estate prices. There's a notable decrease in wages. As people get laid off, the wage pressures go downward. There's widespread bankruptcies, foreclosures, and layoffs. Resources are being dislocated, right? That's what's happening is capital, labor, and real estate is being dislocated from where it was. And there are small decreases in consumer goods. Luxury goods might fall dramatically, uh, but necessities fall very little because of consumers' inelastic demand. You're going to buy toilet paper. You're going to buy bread and milk or rice or whatever. You're going to buy the necessities. And this seems awful unfair on the surface of it, doesn't it? Where the basic necessities are falling very little. However, what the mainstream economists miss here is that this changing of prices and this dislocating of resources is opening up profit opportunities. The price of consumer goods is staying firm, but capital is falling, land prices are falling, real estate prices are falling, raw material prices are falling, labor prices are falling, and so the gap between all the resources you need to make consumer goods and the price of those consumer goods is widening. 
And that widening between those prices is profit opportunities. As a result, people become more entrepreneurial because of these widening opportunities. They think, you know, I can get the land, I can buy that store or rent that store and hire a few kids and get some raw materials and sell at a profit. People also become more entrepreneurial because of lack of jobs. Okay, I've got to do something. I've got to make some money. That's what people are doing all over the our economy and all over the world right now. That's correct. So, once again, the Fed and any any Keynesian business model is going to teach you that lower prices are the devil. And if you look up, and I need to link to this um, in the show notes, and I'm going to make myself a note here. There's a speech that Ben Bernanke gave back in, I think it's 2001, I think it was November or October of 2001, where he talked about what he would do with face when he was faced with deflation. And everything that he goes through step by step in that speech is exactly what's going on now. And one of the things that he says in the speech that is so overly powerful is that he says that nobody has ever faced this. If gold does this, then nobody's ever faced it. Well, guess what? Gold did exactly what he said it wouldn't do or he said would be a big fear. So gold did that, and the Fed tried to suppress gold prices when they got pushed up, and they did get pushed up because market demand swung. Market demand for gold went up really high. That's why you saw gold go over 1600 That's why you saw it go up to almost 2000 because people wanted to get out, and also you had people jumping on the bandwagon late to try to make a quick dollar. But for the most part, the Fed will try to keep gold down. And they do that because they don't want people to understand the intrinsic value of it. So I'm going to play one more clip. This will finish out the speech. And then, um, like I said, take a break, and then Thomas Sowell after that. So enjoy. So entrepreneurs put these resources back together. They reallocate those dislocated resources into new firms and new functions. This puts the brake on falling prices. Instead of being a black hole that the mainstream economists see, we see deflation as a shock absorber. There's a shock to the economy, the deflationary process starts, but it's actually a shock absorber that reallocates those misallocated resources back to productive areas that consumers want. So again, entirely different vision of the world. And of course, our vision of stimulus and bailouts and other programs is also quite different. We view stimulus spending, we associate that with higher taxes, higher inflation, and if the money is borrowed, that just means our future taxes are going to go up. None of that is good, either for the people paying higher taxes today or investors looking at the future, it makes the outlook worse for entrepreneurs. It reduces our incentive to invest. And more importantly, it doesn't work. And if we're borrowing the money, it just adds to the national debt. Bailouts are also something we disapprove of. You're giving money to bad companies, the poorest run companies, 
Sometimes it's just a matter of bad luck, but that's the capitalist system. You give bad incentives to both good companies and bad companies with bailouts. In terms of the Federal Reserve's policy, uh, of course we disapprove of that. It discourages savings. Looking at those low interest rates that Doug was talking about, everybody I know, if, you, if I go to a party or something like that and they find out I'm an economist, they want to know what they can do. How can they make money on their savings? You know, what if I say, oh, well, just find the riskiest possible thing you can do and put your money in that. You might earn a few percentage uh, points of interest over inflation. There's really nothing you can do. So it discourages savings, it discourages lending to households and businesses, and it devalues the dollar at the same time. Finally, clash, uh, cash for clunkers and the first time home buyer credit. Well, as Doug said, you know, those policies distort markets, uh, they waste resources. I mean, they're kind of silly in a way. But they are also a good illustration of what I was talking about with deflation. The first time home buyer credit basically said, if you buy a house and this is your first house, you're going to get a $7,000 deduction off of your taxes so that in effect the, house, the, the price you're paying for that house is actually being reduced by $7,000. Okay, if you buy a car, we're going to give you this cash for clunkers rebate. So you're, in effect, reducing the price of those cars, the new car purchases. So what this illustrates is not that we, we want to follow these policies indefinitely, but what it illustrates is that lower prices cause people to buy things. Okay, that's really the solution. We shouldn't fear deflation. We shouldn't fear allowing the marketplace to work, even if it involves a lot of pain in the short run. It's my feeling and my con uh, conclusion that if we had allowed the crisis to take its natural course, we would already be viewing it as an historical phenomenon, not a current phenomenon, but it essentially would be over and we would be on to progress and the future. So in conclusion, there is a great deal of difference between Austrian economics and mainstream economics. Uh, we've had a lot of success in predicting these crisis events and understanding the events as they unfold and how do we go about curing such events. Thank you very much. Excellent. So once again, you can find the full speech. Um, on you can actually go to my YouTube channel, We Are Not Cattle TV, and it's under the um, must-watch videos. Anything I put under the must-watch video is um, what I think is really, really important. So you can go there and check it out. I am going to take a quick break, and then on the back side, I'm going to come back with – actually, I'll just go ahead and play it right now. I'm going to play the Thomas Sowell clip. So we're going to go with Thomas Sowell, and then we'll end up with uh, Ron Paul and uh, Gerald Salente. But let's talk about quickly 
what the Fed was supposed to do. Now, the Fed was supposed to stabilize interest rates. They were supposed to um, prevent big crashes and a couple of other things, and they haven't done any of those. So the thing that's very, very scary is that you have people that believe that the way the system's set up now and the way that the system runs is fine because they've had success in the system. But they don't understand the overall scope of the system and how it, how it runs and what it really does. And what it does is it makes a dollar in your bank account worth less each and every day. And that's considered robbery. So the more money they print, the more bailouts that you have. Remember, bailouts aren't this fancy you know, money that they make up out of nothing and they just give it to a company and then the company pays them back. No, they sign you, the taxpayer, onto that loan. You're signed on. You're indebted for that. That's why people were against the banking bailouts. Because the bankers, once again, once Glass-Steagall was removed and a couple other regulations were removed where they could actually make 30 and 40 to 1 bets with other people's money. I mean, who's not going to make crazy bets in those situations, especially somebody that, that, that really loves cash? I mean, if you really love money, you want to. You're. I mean, they call them money junkies for a reason. These people are addicted to money, so you give them that leeway to go ahead and make thirty and forty to one bets with other people's money. Of course, they're going to do it. And if they're going to lie about it, of course they're going to lie. You know, John Corzine knows one point two billion that were missing from his company's coffers, and they still haven't gotten all the money back yet. And the guy tried to pull a fast one and say, "Oh, I don't want to." Because he got caught, I think it was like back in November. I watched the entire two hours of him on getting questioned by the, um, the Senate committee. And they they sat there and drilled him for you know two hours. And he's like, well, you know, I, I think that we should restart the trial you know, come January. I think we just need to postpone this to January, knowing that all this stuff would blow over. It's the same thing that happens in, in, our, um, in our media and, and then just the way that we operate. And that's what's really sad is that is that there's so many different distractions out there that nobody can really keep their eye on the prize. And the prize, everybody, is liberty and freedom. The prize is restoring what was naturally here to begin with. Once again, the Constitution doesn't, it doesn't give you rights. It just secures them. Your rights are already there for just existing on this planet. For you coming out of your mother's womb, that inherently, you get all those rights. And the Constitution, the Bill of Rights in, in particular, is just a manifestation of those rights that you're born with. It's manifestation, it's letters on pieces, a piece of paper confirming the rights that you're born right, with. So let's go, to, um, let's go to Thomas Sowell and his thoughts on the Fed, and then we'll get Ron Paul's take. And uh, once again, thanks for joining us. Follow me on Twitter. We are not cattle the number one. And um, you know, like my Facebook page and come join the event, you know. The uh, 23rd of December this year, you can find it on the Facebook calendar, and um, I'll actually post it to um, to my website, wearenotcattle.net, and uh, it's Alternative Currency Day, everybody. Show the Fed how much we care. So here's uh, Thomas Sowell. Once again, the basics, uh, basic economics is a must-read. I'm about halfway through it, but it's uh, fantastic, and here's his breakdown on the uh, on the Fed. Lots of questioners want to know whether you share 
Congressman Ron Paul's skepticism of the Fed. And now I'm going to quote you. This isn't in basic economics, but a recent column. Quote, for most of the history of this country, there was no Federal Reserve System. There you go, that dirty trick of bringing in history. Oh, yeah. Uh, there was no Federal Reserve System, which was established in 1914 to prevent bank failures. But bank failures in the 1930s exceeded anything ever seen before the Fed was established. Close quote. If you could, if we could make you dictator, would you abolish the Fed? Yes. You would? Yes. I mean, for, for, for the reasons I just gave, the history. There's no, uh, you know, the Fed represented wonderful hopes, but, but we've had so many programs that represented wonderful hopes that ended in disaster. I, I don't doubt that someone who was sufficiently uh, scholarly could come up with examples of where the Federal Reserve made things better. But the question is, Overall, what was it supposed to do? It was supposed to do not only prevent bank failures, it was supposed to prevent huge changes in the uh, money supply, in particular, uh, great deflations. Right. The greatest deflation in American history occurred under the Federal Reserve System. You know, we, we, there was a crisis in 1907. Uh, J.P. Morgan, the original J.P. Morgan, uh, called the other banks into the room, uh, supposedly locked the doors, and said, we've got to do something or we're going to all collapse. And they did something, and they didn't all collapse. But but the but people, the progressives were were shocked that one man could come in and take command of the situation, and especially someone who wasn't even in the government. Right. So, but so what would you do? You'd move us back to the gold standard, or you'd let no, banks no. issue their own currencies the way they did uh, up through the Civil War? Say you you could. I could, I could well, like, they weren't doing any of those things no. uh, as of the time the Federal Reserve was was created. We were on the gold standard though. But uh, whether we're on or off the gold standard, there's a, that's another whole set of arguments. There's no evidence that I can see that over this vast period of time that the Federal Reserve has existed, that things on the whole have been better. The great post-World War II uh, uh, inflation was fed by the, Fed, by the Federal Reserve doing exactly what they're planning to do now, namely buying up the bonds issued by the Treasury. Oh, but don't you have, I have to say, I wasn't expecting your answer to, uh, to run in this direction, so I don't have questions, follow-up <laughs> questions prepared, or you may actually have, I may actually have to think here in real time. But don't we have the example of that period from 83 through a uh, couple of years ago, that 25 years of economic expansion, we had only two downturns. They were both very shallow and very brief, and what you had was Paul Volcker, whom Carter appointed, but Reagan gave the freedom actually to ring inflation out of the currency. He did that by the mid-80s. The economy takes off. Alan Greenspan does a reasonably good job, and then at the end, there's too much money in the, but maybe five years of getting it wrong. So what got, Volcker did was undo the harm that previous Federal Reserves had done. <laughs> including Arthur Burns. Yeah, unfortunately, who was my teacher and one of my much admired. Right, right. So, but what would you replace it with? How would the currency? Who who would? How would the currency run? We we we, we would replace it. We could replace it with what, what existed when it was created, which was the gold, gold standard. Well, it, maybe the gold standard, but maybe not. But I, but there's no evidence that I mean, what would you replace it? Things always bother me. You know, oh, I, they do? when someone removes the cancer, what do you replace it with? <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's so awesome. That's that's the um, that's my favorite line in that whole little that whole interview. But um, yeah, he's right. But once again, that's why that's why these these events that we do are so important. They're calling attention to the Federal Reserve is important. Calling attention to monetary policy is important. Um, why we give 
federal funding to all these countries is important while we're bankrupt. That's that's important. We need to discuss these things. And we don't need to have the, the fake right-left discussion of foreign aid. We need to have real heart-to-heart conversations with the American people and say, do you believe that our government is going bankrupt and yet we're giving other countries millions and billions of dollars? I I, I would rather uh, call me an isolationist, call me an, an, a non-New World person, but I would like to secure my country's financial stability first and then branch out into other areas. So here is Ron Paul. Um, I can't remember. I think this was on Fox Business. So here's Ron Paul on Fox Business. It's a longer clip, and then I'll get Gerald Salente, and then we'll get into some news because um, – oh, yeah, all the way um, – by the way, you need an escape plan and a disaster plan for your bunnies, everybody. You need one, and I'll tell you why in a minute. So here's the clip. By reading a statement you made in the banking committee Uh, on September 10th, 2003, in fact, I reprinted the whole thing in my book. I want want Americans who hear leaders saying every day, we could have never seen this coming. This was a shock. How did this happen? I want to read what you said five years Hmm. before the collapse. The special privileges granted to Fannie and Freddie have distorted the housing market by allowing them to attract capital that they could not attract under pure market conditions. Like all artificially created bubbles, the boom in housing prices cannot last forever. When housing prices fall, homeowners will experience difficulty as their equity is wiped out. Furthermore, the holders of the mortgage debt will also have a loss. These losses will be greater than they would have otherwise been had government policy not actively encouraged overinvesting in housing. And you go on to say because so many people will invest in housing, the damage will be catastrophic. Congressman, how could it be that you knew this on the banking committee in 2003 and nobody else did until after the collapse? Well, I, w- I would think the easiest explanation is is uh, Washington, D.C. is permeated by Keynesian economic thinking. Very few even know the name Austrian economics and understand the business cycle. I was concerned about the building of the bubble since 1971 when gold uh, was dealing from the dollar. So since that time, the bubble has been gradually being inflated, but it got out of hand in the 1990s as well as after 2000, Bernanke taking interest rates down to 1%. To me, uh, the biggest surprise was, although I was very concerned in 2003, I was concerned before that, I'm surprised it lasted to 2007. That's when the bubble really burst, but it was amazing how long it lasts. And to me, the more amazing thing right now is not only has the financial system collapsed, which is very, very bad and very dangerous, I believe that what we're moving toward now is the collapse of the dollar. And the collapse of a dollar, because it's the international reserve currency, I think is going to be much worse than what we have already witnessed. Can you all believe this prediction in 2003? Absolutely. Talking to everybody on the banking committee, telling them, hey, we're in trouble. Let's not go this direction. Right. Or we're going to be in trouble. And then, you know, um, Ron, uh, somebody that probably didn't vote for you, uh, Columbia economist Jeffrey Sachs, uh, came on this show and said, what we're doing now with these economic policies is rebuilding another bubble. Uh, And creating debt, more debt. 
Well, well, they're trying, but they're, they're going to have a difficult time uh, reinflating re the bubble. To me, what is disturbing is those individuals who did not predict what was to come are now predicting that the, uh, that the downturn has ended. It's over. At the end of the year, we're going to have growth. They're still listening to, to the Bernankes uh, of the world. And yet, they were completely wrong before. Greenspan was wrong. Bernanke was wrong. But all of a sudden, oh, I know. The end has come that we, we got into our trouble by spending too much, borrowing too much, and inflating too much, and now that's all they're doing, and now they're predicted, and they have given credibility of knowing how to predict the end well, of this downturn. That Ron, to be astounding. Hey, Ron, not only that, the very people that sat in your committee when you told them what was going to happen remained silent. And in fact, some accusing you and other Republicans that were critical of Fannie and Freddie of being racists who hated poor people, those very people that missed all the warning signs were then put in charge of the trillion-dollar rescue. But, but Joe, you got you got to give them a, a little bit of credibility here on this argument because, you know, I was still on the fringe back in 2003. Nobody cared what I was saying. Now, now at least I have 100 or 200 people who care, so I'm getting a little bit more attention. <laughs> and, and it isn't so much me. Uh, I'm just reciting what I've learned by studying free market economics. And, and we haven't had free market economics. Now they're blaming capitalism for all these problems and not enough regulation. We've had crony capitalism. We've had inflationism, corporatism, big government. We've had no, we've not had true free market capitalism, so we have to define it. Somebody asked me once, who is the, who, what individual is the cause of this problem? I would put it all on the shoulders of Keynes. <laughs> you know, it's a long time since he's been around, but Keynesianism exists. Remember what Nixon told us, we're all Keynesians now. That was when the last link of the dollar to gold was removed, and since that time we've had nothing more than these bubbles and big government, but it is coming to an end. We can't afford this foreign policy or these bailouts any longer. Exactly. Carla? We, are, we, are, we are out of money. We have got to show restraint at home and restraint overseas. Carlos. Uh, Congressman, to that point about restraint at home and restraint overseas, how would you cut not just the deficit but the debt um, if you had the president's ear? Well, I would start overseas because politically it's more uh, more palatable. Uh, sometimes a conservative will come up and they'll have an amendment and cut 5% out of child health care. <laughs> you know, I don't believe in the government being involved in medical care, but that's not where I would cut. I would cut overseas spending. To operate our empire costs us a trillion dollars, so I'd bring our troops home. I wouldn't be, you know, we had this supplemental yesterday. The president asked for 84,000. What the, what did the, uh, the, uh, 84 billion? 84 billion. What, what did the Democrats do? They raised it by 14%, another 12 billion. The Republicans had one chance to cut uh, and and they, they had one amendment, and they asked to increase it by $3 billion. Congressman Paul, what the Congressman Paul, but what else would you cut? Because as you just said, that wouldn't be enough. If you were just to cut defense spending, right. you still wouldn't get there. How about to get rid of the Department of Education and Department of Agriculture? Just go down the list. Get rid of it. Cut, it, cut the budget in half. Amen. Yeah, that's why I like ending with him. So... Now let's break into the to the bigger picture, and then and then that'll be the economic breakdown for the show. And um, for all the people that are listening in, um, if you're listening in on Liberty Movement Radio, check me out um, nine until eleven p.m. You can find me on um, you can find me on Facebook. You can find links to uh, the podcast on WeAreNotCattle.net under upcoming podcast. Um, if you're listening to me on Liberty Express Radio for the for the weekend show. 
You know, check me out during the week, Tuesday and Thursday night from 9 until 11. Just trying to awaken the people, trying to get you a different perspective. Let's all question. We got we got a question. We spent our entire lives, or at least I did, spent the majority of my life just going, kind of going along to get along, keeping my head down, you know, not making waves. But um, as I watched my country slowly get destroyed, as I watched civil liberties slowly get pulled away, big news on some um, some protesting uh, legislation that's once again the criminals passing more regulations on the people, yet making themselves tax-exempt or not really tax-exempt. Remember, they can insider trade, but they can't. But in order for you to go and request excuse me, request the records, you actually have to go physically to Washington, D.C. Once you go physically to Washington, D.C., then you got to go into the basement, and then you got to actually log into a computer, and then you can print the documents off um, a 15 cents a page, on a 20-page-per-minute printer. So, um, so good luck. So, anyway, here is um, just really quick what what all this means. What all this means, the Fed keeping interest rates at zero, the Fed monetizing debt, the Fed, you know, $85 billion of treasury notes a month. What does that do? What does it all mean? Well, they're creating cheap money. And I'm going to let Gerald Salente, who's a trends forecaster, who's accurately predicted all these different crises, just like Ron Paul. Once again, not the all he, he was on CNN a couple of times in his earlier career, and then he was not towing the establishment line, so they never invited him back. But he's on RT and a couple other different shows, and I'm trying to get him on my show because I just I think he's a fantastic guy to listen to, and he knows his stuff. So um, here is Gerald Salente, and then after that, we're going to get into the news and. And why you need to um, have the disaster plan for the bunny. Got to have it for the bunny. Got to have a disaster plan for fire, flood, you name it. So be ready. Start working on your disaster plan right now. Here's the Gerald Salente clip. Well, again, you know, when you, when you look at the consumer, you know, gasoline prices mean a lot. You know, that's a really, it's a, the big screen TV, the things that count. GDP rolls off the mind of most people. They don't know what that even is, even though it could have bought Brad Press just before the election. So again, you know, I don't know their motivation, but what I do know again is where it hit the consumer in the pocket the most, and that's gasoline prices. That's in front of everybody virtually every day. Those numbers really dove before the election, and now they're spiking back up after the election. So to me, that is the subtleness that I look for. All right, fourth quarter didn't look good at all, uh, shrank the first time since 2009. But more recently, the White House, um, or the, excuse me, the stock market has surged more than 6% this year, breaking a record. So, Gerald, isn't that a good sign? Again, why is money going into the stock market? Listen to the words that just came out of Davos last week, three letters. LBO, leverage buyouts. Money is cheap. You're not getting any interest. In the old days when I was a kid, people had this strange thing. They used to put money away in the bank, Liz, and get a return on it with interest rate increase. You put your money in the bank now, you take it out, you lost money, accounting for inflation and currency devaluation. So people, this is a known strategy that by lowering interest rates, more money would flood into the equity markets. They knew this. We said this when it was happening before they, when they started to do it. 
So that's what's boosting up the stock market. And again, the only thing that's keeping any of this going, not only in the U.S., in, in the U.K., in, now in Japan, in the European central banks, they're all dumping money into the system and lowering interest rates. That's the only thing that's keeping it alive, and that's what's propping up the stock market. Now, Gerald, uh, we don't have too much time left, but uh, when you see the figures, uh, the fourth quarter doesn't look very good. This is prompting fears of another recession. I know that you are kind of a, this master forecaster. What do you think is the likelihood of uh, another recession? Our forecast to 2013 is more of the same but worse. We see recession on the horizon. There's going to be a point, Liz, when they have to raise interest rates because of the debasement and devaluation of the currencies. When that happens, you're not going to see homes being so, uh, bought the way they are now. You're going to see a slowdown across the board. Again, the only thing that's keeping this going is the cheap money, the zero interest rates, not only in the U.S., but in Japan, around the world. It's a currency war. Everyone knows it. At some point, the interest rates are going to go up and the economy is going All to go right. down. Uh, Gerald, that's a very unsettling forecast you bring us there, especially, you know, a lot of people hoping and praying that we are getting out of this last... No, hoping and praying. God, let's all hope and pray that the Fed can save us. Woo! The Fed and the politicians, they're going to get us. All right, so that ends the uh, economics portion of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, share it with friends, share it with family. Tell five people about the show. Let's try to get more people involved here. Let's try to get the uh, the conversation going. Let's try to enlighten and expand our consciousness. Let's have the consciousness awakening first. Once we get everybody consciously aware of what's going on with the manipulation of the systems, the currencies, the uh, the government, you name it. That's all it is. It's just having having your conscious attention focused on everything that's going on around you and not being distracted by the royal wedding or anything like that. Now, I've had a couple of people ask me what I think about the royal wedding. You know, I've got family members that have lived in England, and they, they don't mind monarchy, but... I think that in 2013 that you have somebody that sits on top of a throne and has red carpets pulled out for them for just being born under a certain bloodline I think is absolutely preposterous. The fact that she wears gold crowns and and the fact that people care about a couple having a baby is amazing to me. And sycophantically caring too, not even understanding what royalty symbolizes, and I don't know what it symbolizes to you guys, but to me, royalty and monarch symbolize oppression. That's what they symbolize to me. They symbolize King George, they symbolize people like that. That's what they symbolize to me. I don't worship them, I don't think that they're any more special than you or I. Frankly, I think that it's amazing that they can actually breed with all the inbreeding they did when they were you know, younger, when they would try to breed with like sisters and brothers and stuff. Craziness. But um, you've got to get people away from that kind of stuff. It's only going to dilute our society. You've seen how far we've fallen in just 20 years of, of uh, reality television. Um, gangster rap has been a big push by the establishment, and that's to, you know, to, to, get the, to get the black population fighting with each other. I heard some crazy statistics the other day, and I got to vet these, but it's something over like 
I think it was over like 85% of um, of all gun cr- gun murders that occur with uh, with blacks are typically black on black crime. So I have to vet those numbers, but I'll let you know next time on I'm on air. It's just absolutely astonishing. But then the establishment pushes stuff like George Zimmerman and um, and you know and the Trayvon Martin thing, so they can get racial division going because they have to keep us all infighting with one another. Because if we all look at the big criminals up in Washington. Then it's all over. Ball game's over. As soon as we kick them out, it's we're going to start from scratch, and, and then we can we can try to reinstitute the Constitution. Now, I, I'm once again a a very limited government person. I would consider myself an anarchist. I believe that the free market can provide a lot of services without having to take money at the barrel of a gun to go ahead and provide for people. People always say, "What about national defense and stuff like that?" Listen, the, the United States rarely ever gets attacked. We're we're in a complete cluster with our financial position. That's why I said go to the Constitution first. We can start from there. At least that gives us a Navy. We can have a Navy and have the Marines with the Navy. I mean, it gives you some kind of backing. So we're not going to be completely, you know, caught off guard. But empire building has got to stop. And you got to stop believing that the empire building is going to make you rich and famous and it's going to take care of you. Empire building does none of that. It does none of that. It takes your money from you, and it applies it to things that you would never apply it to before. There is no way that I would ever order a drone strike on a on a family of 20 just to kill one supposed bad guy. But the government takes my money at the barrel of a gun and goes and does it. So there you go. So we got to get people thinking outside the box. It's not it's not that you hate the it's not that you don't like the people. In the government, because remember, they're all humans. A lot of them are peer pressured into doing things that they don't want to do. But you have to look at the overall policies and who's pulling the strings. And it's not the people in Washington per se. It's the special interest groups. We need to get those people out. Um, I'm actually going to read an article that was posted today by a gentleman that I interviewed on my uh, podcast. If you want to check out the interview, you can go look it up on um, on the We Are Not Cattle TV channel. It's um. It's a We Are Not Cattle Interviews Lee Camp. I hope that it's up there. If it's not, I'll upload it this weekend. Or you can search the archives on Blog Talk Radio or search the archives on my um, website and scroll down and find the uh, We Are Not Cattle Interviews Lee Camp. Or you can go to the We Are Not Cattle Facebook page, and it is posted on there. But um, here is the title. And you know what? I'm going to go to the – yeah, I'll go to the rabbit next. Here, because this is super important, and then we'll end on something funny because the police state's funny. Let's just be honest. Lee Camp from the blog Huffington Post. Anti-protest law passes nearly unanimously, and is signed by the president. And this was um. This was a long time ago. This was back in um, this was back in March. So get ready, everybody, because they're going to start rolling this stuff out. Because you're starting to see it with all these different little things. But, um, man, I didn't know that this came out so long ago. Holy cow. Well, we need to revisit it. So he says, some great news, folks. Republicans and Democrats in Congress have finally come together on something huge. And to discuss – and this guy's – these guys disagree on everything. So let's get to the the Jews and the Palestinians don't trust each other or the Eskimos and polar bears you know, playing Jenga. That's what he's referring to. And he says – I'm referring to Bill H.R. 43 that was signed by President Obama the other day, passed unanimously by the Senate, 388 to 3 in the House. 
It was nearly every single lawmaker. At the, at the time they agreed to close, closely something, the bill was raised monthly in congressional pay and include a box of ding-dongs and erect funnel cakes featuring Bonanza's um, star Peril Roberts and a gentle yet inquisitive um, prostate exam every Tuesday. So what was the magical universally loved bill say? Well, some are calling it the anti-occupy law, which allows government to bring charges against people that are involved in any kind of political protest at any location the Secret Service, quote, is or will be temporarily visited. So basically the government wants to shut down a protest. They can send a Secret Service officer down there to scratch his balls, and then they can pull – they can start pulling people and putting people in jail for a year or more, and it goes on. So you guys can read this. I forgot all about that, but this was – yeah, it looks like it was posted back in March, but the the Huffington Post is dated for today. So I'm pretty confused. I don't know if this was something that was just recently passed or not. But I am going to go to now some more fun. This is about the this is about the rabbit. And everybody, let's be serious for a minute. Think about your pets. Think about your bunnies. Think about your dogs. You need to have an escape plan for them. So here's the headline, and if you've heard this before, my wife read it to me over the weekend, and I almost fell out of my chair. I almost did a video of it when I was out in the boonies, but I couldn't get um, I couldn't get it to upload to YouTube. So it says, magician ordered to pull rabbit out of disaster rabbit disaster plan out of his hat after he was forced to buy a special bunny license. Welcome to Slavery Incorporated, everybody. Do you have a license for that bunny, sir? It says, Marty Hain, or Marty the Magician, as he is known as sun groups around Springfield, Mass., where he makes a living making his rabbit, Casey, magically appear from various places. Birthday gifts, miniature library, cookie jar, is headlining a ventriloquist convention in Cincinnati this week. It's an adult crowd, not one easily amused by cuddly bunny gags, so... Casey didn't <clears throat> didn't make the trip, but was still the star of Mr. Haney's Wednesday night. He says people can't believe the story. He said, I did a 10-minute bit at the start of my show last night talking about my rabbit situation, the magician explained on Thursday. It was better than any magic trick I could ever pull. The people could not believe the story. And here is where your big, loving government hug comes in, so... Everybody saddle up. The U.S. Department of Agriculture, that's right, the USDA, requires the rabbit to be licensed, which is weird enough. But there were things – but but where things entered the rabbit warren of the truly bizarre is what the USDA rule seven years in the making says. Marty must have a disaster, quote, plan in place by July 29th, 2013, in case of calamities, including fire, flood, earthquake, landslide, mudslide, avalanche, wildfire, international attack, to name a few. For his bunny. He said, my country is broke, Haney says, and... We're out of money, and now the government is spending time, money, and worried about an emergency plan for a bunny rabbit. Yeah, it's about teaching you you're a slave, dude. It's not about money. It's about henpecking you into submission. 
Stay in line. Stay in line. Do you remember when you know school teachers used to poke you with that finger? Poke. That's what they're doing. Or as uh, open carry ed likes to call it, poking the bear. They're just poking the bear. It says before there was ever a plan or a need for one, the rabbit was there was the the rabbit license. Charlie Casey's predecessor was the backbone of Marty's stick when he was working the library circuit around um, Monet, Missouri in 2005. I was booked for an entire week to do 10 libraries, Haney said. To promote the show, the library, the library ran a picture of me holding a bunny rabbit. There was a United States Department of Agriculture inspector living in the town, and she came to my show. Oh, here comes your bureaucrat. God, you got to love these people. I didn't even use Charlie in the particular part of the show, but she busted me anyway. I did the show, and my mom always comes up to me afterwards, and the kids – and moms always come up to me afterwards, and the kids come up and shake my hand. And the investigator barged through the crowd and stuck a badge in my face and asked to see my license. Yeah! Woo! You think you're doing a magic trick, you American piece of trash? Let me see that license, boy. This is so retarded. Like, what? What is wrong with these people? Marty was confused. He asked, license? What license? The inspector replied, for your rabbit. Uh, I told her I didn't understand the needing of a license if I was using tigers, but I'm using a bunny rabbit. It's a three-pound rabbit. No slave. That is an article that they can tax you for. Even even bunnies, one rabbit musician learned soon, need USDA approval. A process involved filing, filling out, excuse me, filling out multiple forms and getting Charlie examined by a vet. An exercise of bureaucratic oversight that repeats itself annually for Mr. Haney and his bunny at the cost of $100. There is the kicker. It is not about protecting the bunny. Anytime that government does anything, people, it is about to get your money. It is The war on drugs is not to protect you from yourself. It is to revenue generate. The war on terror is not about protecting you as an American. It is about building a police and security state so they can fund all these different corporations making all this high-tech gear that the American government wants because it's really freaking cool. you got to have the really cool stuff. So the only way that they can do it and justify it is by telling you that you're all going to get blown up by al-Qaeda, which our government runs, if you don't let them have cameras everywhere, including on your computer and on your phone. So, sorry for that diatribe. Let's continue. The 54-year-old is also subject to surprise annual inspections. Ooh, surprise annual inspections. I'd like to see you guys try that with me. And ensure that the USDA-approved rabbit, which which shares Haney's residence with Marty's wife, Brenna, Sally, a chihuahua, and three cats named Dante, uh, Tasha, and Sydney in the, in the, in the proper household. Or are properly housed, excuse me. And now there is a new form to tangle with. A comprehensive disaster plan has to be written. Charlie, rest the rabbit, rest his rabbit soul, moved on to the great big magician top hat in the sky about two years ago, leaving Casey as the lone bunny requiring an action plan. Kim Morgan specializes in writing emergency plans for federal agencies. Hearing of Marty's magicianal plight, 
She graciously volunteered her service, producing a 32-page document that had Mr. Haney been a paying customer would have cost him about $100. US Yes. Well, it was $200 you got lucky and got away with there. Won't be so lucky next time, slave. This is why you guys wonder why I'm anti, anti-government. It's just ridiculous. Like, this is retarded. Meanwhile, Mr. Haney was recently in contact with the USDA asking questions, wondering why one man with a rabbit needs a plan, which he claimed he already has a plan for when a disaster strikes. It's called common sense, he says. We live in Missouri. We have tornadoes here, so I have a safe room in the basement. I told the USA DA supervisor I spoke with, if there's a tornado, my 12-year-old chihuahua, her, she's our baby, is in first, then the cats, and then when it, if there's time, the rabbit. We'd all go to the safe room, but the supervisor told me that the rabbit, being a licensed animal, is more important. <laughs> I can't say it. <laughs> okay. I, I thought I could make it through it. All right. We'd all go, I'm going to repeat this again. We'd all go to the safe room. The supervisor told me that the rabbit, being the only licensed animal, remember the only one that's licensed by God, by the state, is the most important. This is so retarded. Haney laughed and laughed at the <laughs> of resignation. He wished the he wished his magic wand could wave the red tape. Instead, he has another piece of paper to keep him and his rabbit company wherever they go. I'll keep Casey's license in an envelope under the front of my car seat, and now the disaster report is it going to go in there too? The magician says. You know, I always thought I had fun, an easy job, and I would never worry about the government bothering me. But our government has gotten so intrusive, their tentacles go everywhere. Amen, brother. Amen. That is just absolutely remarkable to me. <laughs> so crazy. So let's talk about some more government intrusion. Doesn't that sound like fun? Hey, don't forget to get a license. You know what? Since your since your bunny rabbit is licensed, I think that it's more important than your wife, sir. I think that you're gonna have to put your bunny in the uh, in the cage before before your wife goes into the safe room because it is licensed by the state, so it's obviously more important. So let's let's continue. All right, looky here. This is an article out of WorldNet Daily, and this is one of my rival schools. So you guys enjoy this. And here, here's what it says. Looky here, college scans students' eyeballs. And this is an article by Chelsea Schilling. And it says a public university in Rock Hill, South Carolina, was has announced that it's implementing a new eye scanner system that collects records data about features of students' eyes before granting them access to the school buildings this fall. And if you followed the police state very closely, I'm sure you can guess what they're going to say that this is for. It's not a complete invasion of your privacy, and they're not going to sell this to the corporations, and they're not going to give it to the NSA, and they're not going to track you and trace you everywhere on campus with, with cameras. That's not going to happen. Let's continue. Winthrop University Associate Vice President for Information Technology, James Hammond, told Campus Reform that the college plans to use the devices to stop, quote-unquote, Lindsey Graham, or excuse me, quote-unquote, Saxby Chambliss, the bad guys. 
from accessing the buildings on the 445-acre campus. The scanners, or Eagle Eye stations, cost an estimated $2,000 each. The university has already scanned the eyes of more than 1,600 of its students. Good job, guys. Way to go right into the Borg. Winthrop University Head of Technology Services, Patrice Bureau, told WCNC-TV, the school is taking extra precautions after Newtown, Connecticut. What in the hell does New... All right, what's going on here? These people are just trying to find ways to spend government money. After Anne of Lanza killed 26 people at Sandy Hook Elementary and his mother, Nancy Lanza, before taking his own life on December 14, 2012, the Newtown tragedy got everybody's attention, Burrow said. These are people that just freak out. I mean, come on. You know, you know North, North Korean Airlines crashed the other day. You're never going to fly again? Because one airplane crashed in, like, what, six years? You know, break. Hammond told Campus Reform that students would be allowed to opt out of the program. Oh, yeah, you're going to really be allowed to opt out of this, let me tell you. But there are likely to be some difficulty accessing the buildings. Oh, which means that they're going to lock you out. That's all it is. So, I mean, come on. If you decide the future there may be some places where you have to be used an alternative method to access which you might in, which might inconvenience you. It said if you decide in the future that there will be some places where you will have to use an alternative method of access which might inconvenience you. Once again, you're going to have to like scale a building or something and then shimmy down the pipe in order to get in through a window, but that might be a slight inconvenience. I have no idea. I'm just speculating. I mean, if this is a government-run operation and if it's completely funded by these organizations, which I'm sure that it is, yep. Anyway, Hammond claimed that the devices do not – oh, here's the here's the kicker. Yep, the devices do not store photographs of the student's eyes. Rather, they detect 250 unique features of the iris, 10 times more points of comparison than a fingerprint, and and convert the image into digital data that is stored in the university system. Wait a minute. We don't store photographs of the student size, but we are storing your data, the data points of the you know the triangulation of all the the different you know 250 unique features of the iris. We're storing that, but we're not taking photographs, so that's fine. That's completely fine. According to advocates of iris scanning, the digital data is protected by lawmakers of security and cannot be reconstructed. When students approach the building, they will need to look into the scanners to be granted access. Winthrop University website explains. Eye features are unique to each eye, so each feature can be stored along with the individual's name and other details in a database. Oh, man, that's freedom. God, that's just freedom. And the use of eye scanners has caused some concern about privacy issues. In Florida, some parents were outraged when they learned that Polk County School District had been scanning their kids' children's eyes without their consent in May. Yeah, they scanned it for like a week and then sent a letter home and said, hey, we're thinking about scanning your kids' eyes. Like, no, we're not really down for that. Oh, we've been doing it for a week. Sorry. Sorry. Parents were told they could opt out before the 750 children had already had their eyes scanned. Once again, I mean, come on. Who buys this crap? Winthrop University noted that the technology has been around for several years by airports and hospitals and military bases. Well, I mean, we're all prisoners, so why not? I mean, just go ahead and – yeah, if it's on the military bases, that's completely fine. Once again, you opt into those things. This is a private university. You're paying to go to school there. You shouldn't have to pay for spyware to go in there, and I guess if you want to be quote-unquote safe, then go there. It's crazy. 
Hammond argued that the ID cards and security badges are not as effective as eye scanners. Iris scanners are more accurate and cannot be forged in today's technology. Who in the heck is going to – all right, whatever. ID cards are less effective because they can be passed to others or stolen or even forged. Um, Bernot said um, – Bernot told WN, WCNC-TV, with this system, you can gain the convenience that you might not see at first, like you won't lose your eyeball at home. Now, just once again, it's so convenient to be a slave. It is just so convenient. Look, we'll give you welfare. We'll give you food stamps. We'll give you job assistance. We'll give you, we'll give you retina scanners that can just scan your eyes and then sell it to the NSA. Everything's good. Don't worry about it. The countries have begun to – or other countries have begun to embrace iris scanning technology. India has printed 350 million citizens – wait, has – Iris printed 350 million citizens in their national ID program. Oh, doesn't that sound like a good thing? God, national ID programs are so good. It plans to scan all 1.2 billion into its borders. Likewise, Mexico has launched a $225 million program to fund the first Iris match ID cards. Also in the U.S., the FBI has been constructing an Iris scanning system that, that tracks persons of interest. And if you read the My Homeland Security report, I'm a person of interest because I believe in the gold standard and I am a Ron Paul supporter. And I also think there's a one world government being set up behind the scenes and then lying to the American public and every other public on the planet and saying, no, this is not going on, but we're just going to go under UN treaties now and – and we're going to look at the Trans-Pacific Partnership as something that could really make America great again. And actually it's going to bankrupt the you-know-what out of our country. But that's okay because a politician told me that it's good for me. I mean we should just go around with cyanide capsules and hand them out to people and say, you know what? Barack Obama said that this is vitamin C. But it says cyanide on it. Won't that kill me? No, no, no. No. See that – what you're what you're doing right there, that's conspiracy theory. You're actually not believing a known liar. You need to believe that that cyanide is is vitamin C. Just take it. We'll, we'll, you'll figure it out. So all right, let's get into let's get into one more little clip here. And this is a clip from this is a clip from RT, and I want to expand on this before I end the show. Because this is where the rubber meets the road, as I always say, the police, you guys, and retired military, you guys have got to come over to our side. And I'm not saying that it's like a sided thing, but if you see the government arming to the teeth, if you see them passing laws where they're going to restrict free speech, they're going to have free speech zones, they're going to do all these stupid things. They're going to have iris scanners. They're going to make you, you know, have a have a license for a bunny rabbit. I mean, come on. Stop. Enough with the madness. You can't raise enough money to fill Bernanke's hole of $85 billion a month. Do yourself a favor tonight if you're a police officer and you're listening to the show. Write down $85 billion on a piece of paper. Write it down with all the zeros and dots and everything. Write that down. That is a per month. And ask yourself how many damn tickets you would have to write, how many DUIs you would have to write in a night to even make a dent in that. And that's every month. All right, anyway, so here is the clip, and this is from RT, and it was an interview with a gentleman that wrote a book called Warrior Cop. It's called The Rise of the SWAT Brigade. Um, as most of us know, it's um, 
it's paramilitary force, and you know they're showing troops on the street everywhere, running checkpoints, acting like belligerent jerks at checkpoints to get you acclimated to the fact that you live in a conquered country. And that's why it is very, very important for you once again to go watch, as Megan and I talked about at the very beginning of the show, go watch The Silver Circle. Get some perspective. It's an incredible, it's an incredible movie. It's a cartoon-based movie, so it's pretty. It's I would say PG-13. So if you got people that can understand um, where this country is going, or if they want to know, it's a pretty good idea. It's one of the options. Now my option is for enlightenment and pure freedom for everybody, restoring the Bill of Rights and Constitution, and then we can fight about what kind of government we want from there. Obviously, I'm going to be you know the smaller the government, the better for me, but. You know that's my own opinion. I would like to get back to rule of law first. Can we just do that? Let's go with rule of law and then cut out the corruption. Then we can go from there. So here is the clip from Warrior Cop, and then that is going to do it for the show this evening. Now, since the 1960s, local law enforcement agencies across the U.S. have blurred the lines between police officers and soldiers. So much so that American police forces have adopted a mindset previously reserved only for the battlefield. Now, more recently, the Department, the Department of Homeland Security has doled out grants for local police departments that give them tanks, rockets, and more military-grade weapons. So is this a measure towards a safer society, or does this mentally pit police against the civilians they're sworn to protect? Now, here in studio to discuss is the man who coined the term warrior cop and the author of the new book, The Rise of the Warrior Cop, Radley Belko. Hi, Radley. How are you doing? Hi. Thanks Good for having me here. Now, the acronym SWAT, that stands for Special Weapons and Tactics. And the country first saw SWAT teams in the late 1960s in Los Angeles, but today there's thousands of SWAT teams around the country. Why do you think so many municipalities implemented SWAT teams? Uh, well, there are a lot of reasons. Um, for one, the federal government has sort of encouraged this with uh, anti-drug grants that go to these police departments. So if you send your SWAT team out to arrest a murderer or a rapist, there's no federal money tied to that. If you send them out after a drug offender, uh, your revenue comes into your, your department. Mm. But also, the, the federal government isn't giving away military equipment, surplus military equipment from the Pentagon to police departments across the country. And for the last 30 years, literally millions of pieces of equipment, you know, we're talking bayonets, tanks, helicopters, uh, machine guns, have been transferred to domestic police agencies across the country, which they then use to start SWAT teams. Now, this leads to the next question. Do these SWAT teams, do they threaten American civil liberties? Uh, well, I think there's an appropriate use for SWAT teams, and that's when you have uh, an emergency situation, hostages or bank robbery or an active shooter, and you're using uh, violence to defuse an already violent situation. Um, the problem is that the overwhelming majority of these raids today are to serve warrants on people who are suspected of nonviolent consensual drug crimes. So here you're, you're, using vi you're creating violence where there was none before, mm -hmm. and that I think is really the, the problem. And I, and I think that you know, this happens 100 to 150 times a day in this country, and that's, you know, that is not a, a trend that I think most of us would associate with a free society. Right. Now, you've written that community policing where you know, there's an officer walking the beat, swinging the baton. That is a better way of policing municipalities. Why so? Well, police officers need to have a stake in the communities that they serve. They need to be part of the community, and the community needs to consider them a part of the community. And so, you know, when police is when when police is reactionary, policing is reactionary. When you know cops are only getting out of their squad cars when there's something wrong, when, and so their only interactions with the public are negative. Um, when you have these frequent SWAT raids where communities feel like they're sort of being occupied by some sort of you know outside force. Um, 
that strains relations between police and the community. So if cops are out walking beats, if they know the names of the principals of the schools on their beats, they attend neighborhood meetings, um, then they're considered part of the community. And then when they do have to use force, uh, the community looks at it as one of their own, mm -hmm. protecting them instead of this sort of uh, uh, authority figure from the outside coming in to impose force upon them. Right. Now, why, you mentioned before that police departments are using tanks. Yeah. Why does a police department need a tank? Well, they don't. Um, you know, it's, they use them because they get them for free. Um, and you know, when you have something, you want to use it. Um, but yeah, there's no uh, appropriate use in a domestic environment for a tank. I mean, some of these tanks shoot 50 caliber ammunition, which, you know, even the military has restrictions on when you use those kinds of bullets. Um, you know, it'll go through 10 city blocks, no matter what's sitting in the way. And the fact that the Pentagon is giving this equipment that was designed for use in war uh, to police departments to be used on American streets and American neighborhoods, uh, I think is something that should, should, be, should trouble us. So who is benefiting from the militarization of police departments? Well, I mean, for a long time, it was mostly just the police departments themselves that were getting this equipment. But after September 11th, we started to see the Department of Homeland Security giving grants to police departments to buy more of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And at least with the Pentagon giveaways, this was stuff that already existed. Um, these DHS grants are buying new equipment. And so we've seen companies now spring up to make this equipment to sell these to, to these police departments for these grants. Uh, these companies then are going to use some of that money to open offices in D.C. to make sure the program continues or expands. And so now we have a police industrial complex, uh, sort of a little brother of the uh, military industrial complex. And that that's going to be very difficult to, to roll back. Well, that actually is an excellent segue for me. This Actually, yesterday morning, Ray Kelly, the police commissioner of the New York City Police Department, sure. he did an op-ed for the Wall Street uh, Journal, and he wrote, quote, as a city, we have to face the reality that New York's minority communities experience a disproportionate share of violent crime. To ignore that fact, as our critics would have us do, would be to form it would, excuse me, would be a form of discrimination in itself. Mm. Now, if Ray Kelly, who is being considered for the next head of the Department of Homeland Security, what would a DHS look like under Ray Kelly if he feels this way? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's hard to say because, uh, you know, the, the, um, the policies that you use to, to oversee mm -hmm. a large uh, urban police department are going to be very different than the policies are going to be implemented nationwide mm -hmm. uh, for basically anti-terror purposes. Um, you know, we uh, Kelly did oversee some programs that would be similar. There would be similar programs at DHS. Um, a lot of uh, spying on Muslim groups in, in New York City, uh, and that's that's very very troubling. I mean, I think his nomination is troubling because he, he's clearly a sort of an authoritarian, and that bothers me. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think we're going to have you know a nationwide stop and frisk policy. I think it's it's more just sort of indicative of his of his mindset, and I think it's a it's a troubling development that he's being considered for the position. Now, uh, I read that a number of other federal agencies, like, what is it, Fish and Wildlife Service, like NASA, the Department of the Interior, and even the Department of Education, they have SWAT teams. What does the Department of Education need with a SWAT team? Uh, well, they'll claim that they, you know, they investigate fraud, uh, fraud through the student loan program, uh, and that some of these people are dangerous, and therefore they have to, you know, have a tactical team to serve warrants on these people. Um, you know, the problem is, though, it used to be when a federal agency needed that kind of force, they would borrow a SWAT team from, you know, the FBI or another federal agency. Um, and you know whether or not you think that that kind of force is appropriate to serve those sorts of warrants. You know the problem is when every federal agency has its own SWAT team, uh, they're more inclined to use it more often, right? If you have to borrow it from another agency, you have to jump through some hoops. The, the other agency is going to ask you to justify it. When you have your own sort of ready at your beck and call, you're going to be more likely to use it for you know 
uh, increasingly sort of petty crimes. And I mean, that's the thing, really. I mean, the SWAT teams used to be used only as a last resort in these mm -hmm. emergency type situations. And what we're seeing increasingly today is that they're being used, you know, first or, or second uh, or very, you know, very early on in the decision process. Mm -hmm. And it's just... Um, or they can go in and flashbang somebody that just cocked a shotgun in Freedom Plaza and did nothing wrong and didn't harm anybody, didn't make a terroristic threat, nothing like that. But you know what? We got a SWAT team. We better use it. So everybody knows my take on the on the militarization on the police. So thanks for everybody for tuning in. Check us out next Tuesday night, nine o'clock, nine to eleven p.m. I will be here. Um, we're gonna cut the show a little early tonight. So. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. If you tuned in live, thank you so much. Spread the word about the broadcast. Tell five people you know. Let's get informed, get involved, and uh, love liberty, everybody. And as we say, get a friend, get informed, get involved. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Once again, thank you for Renee for coming on and sharing the great info on the Silver Circle. Go check it out, everybody. Take care. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.